Well, good morning. Please turn with me to John chapter 8, verses 21 through 29. I'm going to go ahead and, and just read all these verses before we get into our, our message this morning. In John 8, verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's the word of the Lord. Now that text, we're going to think about a few things. That there's facts in life that we don't naturally embrace initially. I think we can all think of categories like that for ourselves Things that just seem like they can't possibly be true. It takes us a while to come around to accept them and embrace them. Let me just throw out one. Here's a fact. may not embrace it. may not believe it. Cowboys have not been good for 25 years. (laughs) It seems like Tony Romo left to three or four Super Bowls, but we haven't been good for 25 years. 1996. It's been a drought. Here's another fact that's maybe a little bit hard to embrace initially. The tomato is a fruit. It's not a vegetable. When we see that, we don't go, yeah, you know, fruits are delicious and sweet. Who puts a tomato in their smoothie? No one. Does anybody eat pureed banana on their french fries? We eat pureed tomato, so it's there. And here's maybe the biggest one of all. This one's going to blow your mind. I had to sit and think about it and pray about it a little bit as I was going over this. All Mexican food is essentially the same. Think about this. Burritos, tacos, chalupas, fajitas, quesadillas, chimichangas, all the way down, to enchiladas, tostadas. Now just pause and think. Of all of those things, what is not some combination of meat, cheese, beans, and tortillas? That's what they all are. But they're delicious and they seem different, but they are all the same. So our text this morning, these few verses, ten verses... Right in the middle of it, in verse 26, Jesus says, I declare to the world what I have heard from him, him being the Father. So this text, on all of John's gospel, but this text particularly displays for us three declarations of Jesus that he gets from the Father that are not readily received by humanity. And that's Jesus Jesus says, all I'm doing, all I'm doing is declaring what I've heard from the Father. These are three facts that the unbelieving world doesn't readily embrace. Three facts that that the church embraces, but we know that we embrace it only because God has allowed us to, has given us eyes to see. And even still, we struggle to embrace some of these facts that we're going to be looking here at. Jesus says in John 18, 37 to Pilate, minutes before he's crucified, he says, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Jesus says right there, what is his purpose? To bear witness to the truth. We know from other places like Luke 19, verse 10, that he came to seek and to save the lost. So these purposes are not contrary to each other. They're a part of it. That in seeking and saving the lost, he has to bear witness to the truth, testify to the truth, just say the truth. And Jesus did indeed earn the right to save us from our own sins by fulfilling the law of God, by dying on the cross, a sinner's death, and raising and leaving an empty tomb. But he also proclaimed that truth, and the truth that goes with that gospel, that he was the only one able to do that, because he is God. And he proclaimed that our sins are what demanded that level of sacrifice. 
And he proclaimed that we are granted, his, he's, our, his earned righteousness is granted to us by faith in him. And so really the big idea of our text this morning is that Jesus just declares to the world the Father's message. That's what he does. And we're going to look at these three unnatural truths that he brings up. Not, not unnatural in the sense that they're awkward or that they're weird, but unnatural that in the sense that to the natural person, just born in the world, you don't readily receive him. It's not naturally received that, that Jesus can't be God. I'm not that sinful. And salvation can't be by faith alone. Those are the three truths, these three unnatural truths that we'll pull out of this text that Jesus is going to declare. That's what he, all he's saying he's doing. I'm just declaring what the Father's told me. He's going to declare his divinity. He's going to declare man's depravity. And he's declared that justification, salvation, is by faith alone. So when we left Jesus last week, he was still in the temple treasury, and that's where he is right now. And the Pharisees were challenging him. Do you remember what they were challenging him on, his testimony? You can't really be who you say you are because nobody's backing you up. And then he goes on to say, no, I do have a valid testimony because I'm from heaven. I'm returning there. I'm one with the Father, and I'm the only way to the Father. He lays those things out. Now what he's going to do in this ongoing conversation with these same Pharisees in the same location, in the open court, the women's court, where any, anybody could go in the temple. It wasn't an exclusive place, out in public. He's going to go on to start a discussion all on his own. A lot of times what he's doing is he's responding to antagonism from the Pharisees or from a crowd or from whoever, or a question, somebody's asked him a question, and he's going to answer that and go on from there. But right now he's going to shift the conversation based only on his own choice. He's choosing to change the conversation to a different direction. And when we see that, we need to always be remembering, too, that Jesus, we know that Jesus is the embodiment of God's love to the world. Because for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So whatever he does, Jesus has done out of love for his hearers. Whatever conversation he engages and then brings up is done out of love Love for us, the future readers of the inerrant word, but love for the folks that were listening to him at that time. So the first declaration, the first unnatural truth that Jesus is going to look at is his own divinity. Have you ever thought about the divinity of Christ being something that's unnatural for us to accept? And it is kind of unnatural. It's difficult for fallen man to accept, especially because he remains truly human while being truly God fully divine and, and fully human. That's called the hypostatic union in theological circles. Hypostatic union. It's mind-bending to think about. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. How can He be the God, Son of God, and Son of Man? And this is difficult for us. And, and early on in the church's history, they had to deal with this heretic named Arius. It became known as Arianism. And what that what meant was this guy was like, it just can't really be that he's truly God and truly man. That can't just be what it is. So we, we got to find some other way to say it that, okay, well, the son, he emanates from the father. He kind of proceeds from the father. He's one of the greatest of the creation, like he's first in line of all the creation, but yet still a created being, that he's of similar substance to God, but not the same substance. And that the church denounces that early on in church history, but it had to be dealt with. And that keeps popping up just because Arius is long dead and buried. doesn't mean that his, his heresy is not. Think of all the modern-day Christian cults that exist. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, on and on. They all say Jesus is just a mere man, a super-duper good one. He's, no, he's like really good, but still a man. And then the two other major world religions, Islam and Judaism, also say, real, real historical figure, but also only a man. That's it. And Christ is going to claim something totally opposite of that or additional to that he is truly man but he is fully god look at verses 21 and 22 so he being jesus said to them again i am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sins where i am going you cannot come 
So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? So the, there's five statements of divinity we're going to look at. The first one here is he's going back to heaven. And he said something like this before. I'm going somewhere, you can't come. Back in chapter 7, verses 33 and following, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little while longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will find me, and where I am, you cannot come? He said it then, but it's a lot more direct now. You cannot come where I am going. You will die in your sins. I am going away. He's referring of returning to heaven, returning to the Father's presence, being there. And they think that he's just, the first time they thought, like, he's just going to go to where the Jews have been scattered all over the, over the Roman Empire. Like, he's going to go to the dispersion where they're dispersed. And then now they're, like, even more drastically, is he going to kill himself? We can't go there? It's not just you won't be able to find me. It's you can't come where I am. Is he going to kill himself? He's just going to go to the land of the dead, and we can't find him there? Ironically, unbeknownst to them, he is going to voluntarily lay his life down, not in suicide, but in submission to the Father's will as a sacrifice for the sins and the love for his chosen. So he's speaking of returning to the presence of God, a place that only God can be. Only God can be in the presence of God. So in a sense, he left that presence when he indwelt or when he became man and put on flesh. But we can't go too far that way because then otherwise we divide the Trinity and that can't happen. But for lack of time, we're going to just leave that. He, he did, in a sense, leave the presence of God. Now he's going back to that presence somewhere where sinners cannot be. Because why? Because God can only allow in his presence those who are equally holy, equally righteous, and that can only be God. So he's going back to heaven. That's one of those statements of divinity. The second one is verse 23. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. Does that sound, verse 23, sounds a little bit like baby talk? You're from down here, I'm from up there. You're from this place, I'm from another place. But he's just being very plain and very direct. You have your origins here on the earth and in this realm that you see and that you know. I do not have origins here. In fact, I have no origins. I have always been. I, I'm not from a realm of creation. He's from an eternal realm. Everything in this world that we see and know has a beginning. It, there was a time when it was not. There was a time when it didn't exist. And then it came into existence. Everything. And Jesus is saying, I am not like that. There was never a time where I didn't exist. I am from above. He's not of the created order. His existence is outside of the known universe. All things that we can see, know, measure, and understand. Claim to divinity. Here's his third one, verse 24. I told you, you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am he you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, you are who? That's the, the question that they asked. Unless you believe that I am the one that I have been claiming myself to be this whole time. Everything that I've said that I am, the bread of life, the light of the world, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the, the creator, the only way to eternal life, the judge of all humanity, I am though, I am he. Unless you believe that I am he, you, you will not. This is an even higher claim to divinity because it just, in, in the Greek, it's just ego a me. I am. I am. And we know of only one other place. Well, one other person has ever said that in the, other, in the scriptures. And it's Yahweh of the Old Testament. It's God the Father. Exodus three fourteen, With the burning bush situation with Moses. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. When you type that into a word processor, it puts a red line under it. Because I am has sent you? That's horrible English. Because it doesn't really communicate in the sense that I have the power of being. I always am. I never was. I never will be. I always am. The power of being. And then Jesus is claiming that for himself. I am. Unless you believe that I am God. I, I am the I am. Then, then you will die in your sins. This is the ultimate claim to deity. 
He is everything that he has ever claimed to be. And he most often claims to be, this is our fourth claim to deity, the Son of Man. Verse 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he. The Son of Man. That's the, that's the term, the title that Jesus gives to himself most often. I am he, the Son of Man. The Son of Man is the title that he gives them. And that title is a claim to divinity. It is a claim to deity. It's not just uh, a convenient way to kind of give yourself a humble title, but not really cause that much trouble, but still be kind of a big deal. No, this is a claim to divinity because it goes back to Daniel. Daniel, who wrote centuries before Jesus ever walks on the earth, he has a vision, and in the vision he sees this, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. So now this is who we're being describing now. The, a son of man, the son of man. And what does he do? And he came to the ancient of days, capitalized, because it's a way, a poetic way to refer to God, the eternal creator of the universe. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, so to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So we look at that individual there called the Son of Man, and what Daniel's seeing there is he can come into the presence of God, in the presence of the Ancient of Days, on his own merit and be welcomed. You can't do that unless you are God. God can't welcome into his presence as receiving and accepting and approving unless you're God. He does that. And then what does he do? Gives him dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And who does it include? All peoples, nations, and languages are going to serve him. And his dominion's an everlasting dominion. What other king, ruler, president, prime minister could ever claim that? I have an unending kingdom. Well, you have to yourself be an unending individual in order to have an unending rule and an unending kingdom. So again, a claim to deity. So Jesus is calling himself the son of man, not something we readily accept. And then he offers up this in verses 28 and 29, this perfect obedience as the fifth claim to divinity. He says that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I speak just. I speak exactly as he taught. Now you show me somebody who says they always perfectly obey God. And I will show you either a liar or a lunatic. That's the only two categories that could possibly exist. I always perfectly obey God. I only say exactly what God would have me say. But that's what Jesus is claiming here. So if he's not a liar or a lunatic, then what must he be? He must be God. He must be truly divine because he has to have the mind of the Father to always speak the words of the Father and he has to, be, have, he has to have the ability to not violate that, to not sin. This is a, the fifth claim to divinity. This is easily observable, too. We can think about how he's, or where he's making this claim. He's making this claim in Israel, in Jerusalem. What more scrutinized, biblically scrutinized culture could ever exist? That everybody's watching everybody, and they all have the book, and all of their sheriffs have the book, and all of their lawyers and judges have the book. That's all that there is. There's no constitution. There's no, like, well, states, this is legal in this state, and this is legal in that state. It's all the Bible. That's their only rule and law. So everybody knows what everybody else is doing and how and where they fall short of that. And they can see that. And Jesus is claiming in public, in a public portion of the temple, I have always obeyed the Father in every instance. And we can see that be proved to be valid by just going to Mark chapter 15. You ever thought about the, diff or the difficulty what does it mean, the difficulty that the Pharisees had in bringing any kind of credible witness to testify to his own sin? 
Mark 15, or Mark 14, rather, verses 55 and following. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony didn't agree. They couldn't even get consistent liars about Jesus. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. They couldn't even tell a right testimony about something he actually said. So this proves that Jesus is the only one with legs and lungs to walk on the planet who can say, I perfectly obeyed the Father always, and I only spoke exactly what he would have me say, and only God can do that. So he makes these five claims to divinity, and if we have a Messiah who isn't God, then all we have is a prophet. And a prophet's helpful, but not so far as getting me into heaven helpful. Helpful for me to know my own sin and to see it clearly and to know more of who God is. But no help for me getting into heaven doesn't save anyone's lives. So if we just have a Messiah who's just a man, then at worst we have the greatest con man of all time. At best, we just have a really good help in knowing how sinful we are. But prophets can't save anyone from their sins and charlatans just ruin people's lives. So he has to be God. And he said as much in this moment with these Pharisees. Now, the second declaration that he's going to make, and that we've seen already in this passage, deals with man's depravity. And I wonder if you know what I mean when I say depravity. Depravity doesn't mean that everybody is as evil and wicked as possible. That everybody is Joseph Stalin. We're not saying that. That's not what depravity means. But it means that every single part of us Soul, mind, spirit, body is radically corrupted. To the, radically meaning to the root. Radical corruption. And unnatural people do not like to hear that, that anthropological truth, that truth about mankind. Christians, we don't like to hear it other time, or, or, or at times either. See, we're hardwired to think very highly of ourselves, aren't we? That's how we're wired to do it. In all of my instances of just street evangelism or just knocking on somebody's door, coming up to somebody next to them on the college campus or just sitting next to them on a bus stop, I've never had anybody say, I'm a bad person. They've always said, I'm a pretty good person. When, you know, when the question comes up like, why would God let you into heaven? Or what do you think gets you from this division that we have with God? And it's always, I can be good enough. I'm a good person. That's all. I've never had anybody say, I don't know, I'm, I'm hopeless because I'm so terrible. Nobody's ever said that. And I think that's common grace in an extent. I mean, because think about it. How terrible would our world be if everyone, because we're all depraved in our sins before Christ, but if everyone just openly espoused their love of evil and loved it as evil. No, this is evil and I love it and I am it. I mean, there, we have seen instances of those kinds of people, but they're exceedingly rare. <laughs> Don't truly evil people try to paint themselves as good to the world? How did Hitler get everybody to follow him? Hey, we're on a righteous crusade. We're going to fix this ma massive wrong. Good people, good people following him because he's painting it as good. David Koresh convinced people we are bringing in the kingdom of God. This is a good thing that we're doing and that I'm making you sign up for. Everybody bristles, at least a little bit, of being told that they are evil and sinful in their hearts. And why? Because they know that it's wrong to be evil and sinful. It's God's common grace that we don't like that. Even if they delight in sinfulness, don't they try to paint it as good? Isn't that the whole push behind the LGBTQ agenda right now? You're not allowed to accept it and tolerate it as an alternative lifestyle. You have to celebrate it as good and right and natural. It's not enough to just tolerate it. Like, okay, y'all can just do your thing. Just don't, just don't bother us. No, no, no. You have to call it good and ask to accept it. Why? Why do they care 
what other people say, whether it's good or not, if they're free to do it. Because we don't like being told how sinful and evil we really are. There's enough in the, of the image of God in all human beings that being labeled sinful or wrong is undesirable to us. Nobody wants to be in the camp of like, oh yeah, we're in the wrong camp. We're the wrong way to be. No, no, no. You call this good and call it acceptable. So Jesus, is in this passage, he illustrates five proofs of man's depravity, that we are that way, that we are sinners. In verses 21 and 24, the harshest saying when he says, so he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. And then verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That, that seems harsh. It seems unloving and to an extent, doesn't it? It also seems a little bit out of the blue. Like, what, were we even talking about that? Well, why? Why is this going on? Why did you say this? Why would you bring this up? But remember earlier in the verses, didn't he say, or in the same dialogue, didn't he say, I am the light of the world. I'm the only hope of leading people out of the darkness. And hasn't Jesus' ministry to some extent been about addressing sin the whole time? I mean, back to chapter 2, what did Jesus do to the money changers in the temple? Did he say, hey, I know you guys have an alternative way of viewing life. I don't think that this is best. No, this is sin, and he drives them out. In chapter 3, Nicodemus, when he comes, he goes, Ah, Nick, I mean, you're really close, bro. Like, you're really, you're right there. And he says, you're not even going to get into the kingdom. Of, you're not even going to see the kingdom of heaven until you're born again because you're such a sinner. Chapter 4, the woman at the well. Was, she, was he like, oh, man, I know she's had like a really rough past and she, she's living in a really bad way right now. I won't even bring it up. No, he says, hey, go bring your husband. Bring him on down. When she knows, he knows she's living with somebody she's not married to. Chapter 5, what if the paralytic, when, she, when he heals the paralytic by the pool, what does he say to that guy? Hey, man, you hit the lotto today. Go and live your best life. No, he says, go and sin no more. In chapter 6, doesn't he expose the crowd of their sinful desire? We just want an awesome free food welfare system. That's all they really wanted, and he exposed that sinfulness in their hearts. In chapter 7, what does he do to the Pharisees' legalism? He exposes that open sinfulness and rejection of God's word. So here we are in chapter 8 with the adulterous woman we saw earlier on. And what did he say to her? After showing her grace, what did he say? Go and sin no more. So Jesus has always talked about sin. But then we have to ask the question, why? Why is he doing this? Why this uncomfortably blunt addressing of people's sin? Well, Jesus serves as the perfect prophet. We know that, right? Capital P prophet that was prophesied about in Exodus chapter 18. One of the three main offices that Jesus, is, Jesus fulfills as prophet. The other is priest and king. So he does function as a prophet. He's not just that. He's got to be more than that. But he is functioning as a prophet. And Ezekiel gives us a great example of God's commands to a prophet. This is your job description, prophets. He says this in Ezekiel 3, verses 17 and following. Son of man, means him speaking to Ezekiel. Interesting that he calls him son of man as well. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. So there it is, watchman. You're watching over them. Whatever you hear from me, you tell them. Now, verse 18 if I say to the wicked, so God's saying, if I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. If you don't warn the wicked, he's going to die, and he's going to die in his own sins, but I'm going to hold you to an extent, accountable, because you didn't warn him. You didn't tell him. But verse 19, but if you do warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. So the prophet there is required to speak the truth. And Jesus is coming and saying, we've already looked at it, like he is the prophet that Moses said is going to come like me. He's more than the prophet, but he's not less than the prophet. He's got to speak that truth. 
required to speak the truth to a lost and dying world. But how do they know they're speaking the truth? This is how John Calvin said it. He said, this is the only confirmation of a doctrine. This is the only way we know that any, any principle we take from the Bible is true. When the minister shows that what he speaks has proceeded from the Father. And isn't that Jesus in verse 26? I declare to the world what I have heard from him. That's all that he's been saying. And the warning of the consequences of sin has one purpose, to save their souls. Jesus isn't jubilant over this. Like, you guys are going to die in your sins, and I can't wait. He's not jubilant over that. He's compassionately warning them. Let's remember, who was it in the garden who said that you will not die from your sins? Who said that in the garden? Was it God or was it Satan? Satan says in Genesis 3, 4, you will not surely die. But what did God say one chapter earlier in Genesis 2, 17? For in the day of you eat of it, you will surely die. So then we can say, therefore, it is entirely godly to warn people of the consequences of their sin. And it is entirely satanic to affirm the opposite. So Jesus is just doing that. Because it's not just that they will die in their sins, but it's that they're dead in their sins right now. Ephesians 2.1 says that we were, when we were dead in our trespasses. And that's because they are what? Verse 23 says, our second point. You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. He puts it as plainly as possible. You're worldly. You, you're born in this world. You have origins from below. We are creatures that are made from the dirt. That's what, that's what we are. And as such, if we are made from the dirt that Adam was made from in Eden, then we are fallen in Adam just as he has fallen, Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, meaning Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all got a bum deal. Because all, ah, I just got the short end of the stick. No, because all sinned, even in Adam. We're culpable. God is entirely other than us, not made of the same stuff as we are. We are corrupted he is incorruptible. Fourthly, they don't know who Jesus is. Again, showing their depravity. Verse 25, so they said to him, who are you? Now, whether they say that sarcastically or genuinely, the reality is, is that human beings have to have Jesus explained to them. Nobody's ever just always known about Jesus. If you leave a kid on their own and then they grow up, they will not come on their own and understand Jesus. He has to be explained to them. That's part of our depravity, our fallenness, that we're utterly incapable. These men are, were utterly incapable of piecing it all together. They read their Old Testament. They see this guy's life. They hear his words. There it is. He's the Messiah. He's the one we've been looking for. He's the prophet that Moses talked about. He's the ultimate priest, the fulfillment of the Aaronic uh, lineage. He's the ultimate king to sit on the throne of David. Here's the guy. They had to have it explained. And even after they had it explained, they still didn't get it. They don't know who he is. That's true of all of us. Remember we saw in John 6, 36 and 44. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In our natural state, we just don't know who Jesus is. Now, I could sure we could go around the room and have everybody tell testimonies and just go, how many of us had to have Jesus, had to have the gospel explained to you over and over and over and over and over again before you finally believed. I mean, that's, that's got to be all. Even if you grew up in a Christian home, it wasn't like, okay, well, you're eight years old now. Explain the gospel. Oh, you believe it? Great. We never talk about it again. No, your parents are over and over and over explaining to you or your friend or your, your neighbor, whoever it was that led you to Christ. It was over and over because you were naturally blinded to it. I think Lydia's conversion in Acts chapter 16 gives us a lot of clarity and a lot of hope for those friends and family that we have that have yet to embrace Jesus as who he really is. Look at Lydia's um, testimony here in Acts 16, 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God, meaning she had the right name, but didn't know the gospel. But then... The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart, and now she pays attention. 
That's what we're praying for, for our lost family and friends and neighbors and acquaintances and co-workers. Lord, open their heart to pay attention, to be able to hear and to understand and to process and then to trust. See, unless God acts upon us that we just remain blind to who Jesus is and blind to who we are. Do you remember, have you noticed we've gone through this passage several times now? Nowhere do they respond to the you will die in your sins part. Wouldn't that raise your flags? <laughs> what do you mean I'm going to die in my sin? What does that even mean? They don't address that at all. They don't bring that up at all because they're blind to who they are, not just who Jesus is. And then lastly, the mark of the depravity that we see is verse 27. They don't understand that Jesus is speaking about the Father. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So we're not only blind to who Jesus is, we're blind to who God is, period. Our minds are numb to him in our natural state. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says as much. In their case, meaning in the unbeliever's case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That mankind, we are depraved and unable to understand, comprehend, and embrace God in our natural state. We're dead in our sins. We don't like to hear that in our day, naturally. They sure didn't like to hear that in their day. This is not something that we just embrace naturally. We all believe that we are better than we actually are. Everyone thinks of themselves as a good person. But Jesus declares in this instance that there are no good people. And he says in another situation with the rich young ruler when he comes, good teacher. Jesus says, hey, why are you calling me good? Nobody's good but God alone. And that guy's presuming that Jesus is just a man. And so Jesus is acting to him like you're just called some teacher good. No one's good but God alone, Jesus says. But now, again, to what end is Jesus doing this? Is he just an American idol judge? You stink. Get out. That's what American idol, American idol judges have never said, hey, here's how some vocal lessons you could get, and this is how you can improve, and this is how you can get on the show. They're just like, you stink. Get out. Is that Jesus? You're dead in your sins. Sorry. You're dead. Sorry. No, he's making clear his divinity, man's depravity. He's making clear that there's an infinite chasm between him and us in order, all for the purpose of exalting himself as the only bridge to span that chasm. He's got to show how godly God is and he himself being God and how sinful humans are. So that we go, how does that chasm get spanned? And that's the third declaration of these unnatural truths for us as humans to accept, is that justification is by faith alone. Salvation is by faith alone. And we don't readily accept this either in our natural state. I mean, I've given the gospel to plenty of people who let me get all the way to the end of the presentation and I get to the point where it's just faith in Christ. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ. And they still don't like that part, the, the trust in Christ alone part. We don't like that for several reasons. It implies, one, that there's something wrong with us. We've done something to ruin our relationship with God. Secondly, it makes us impotent in the process to fix ourselves. And then thirdly, it takes away our pride in comparison. I can't know how I'm doing better in relation to anybody else. So we don't naturally like that. We don't readily accept justification by faith alone because it goes against our prideful instincts. Well, what do we do when we want something to be known about us? That I'm a part of a group, that I'm, I'm really serious about this thing. What do we do? If it's a sports team, what do you do? You go buy season tickets. You go buy the custom, authentic Nike jersey. Put the sticker on your car, the big one, the one you can't even see out the back window with. And then everybody knows that they're the real deal. They got season tickets. They are a fan. Or what about uh, if you're a baker? You got to keep bringing out hot goods from that oven and putting on Instagram stories so people know she can bake. She's the real deal. Look at that. I mean, that was real pureed strawberries right there. Did it all by herself. You got to put it out there so people can know. Or what about this is my struggle. Landscapers. I get up early on Friday mornings to mow my lawn so that I beat my neighbor's lawn person on either side of my house so that everybody knows I'm better than them. <laughs> that my lawn, look how, look, I, and when, when you have that, not, that shared property line and you can see their tall grass and your perfectly cut straight line and everybody driving by can see it, 
feels so good, but it is so sinful. <laughs> we like to, we want to compare ourselves to everybody else. You, you have the ability to prove yourself in other religious systems that I can feel confident because I'm better than you. I'm more committed than you. I got up earlier than you. I put in more time than you. But that gospel takes that away. It's gone. So what do we do to contribute to our salvation? An honest Christian looking at the scriptures, when you go, what do I bring to the table? When I look at the scriptures and I understand who I am and who God is, what did I bring to the table for my salvation? All you brought was sin that made it necessary. That's the only thing you brought to the table. That's humiliating. The only thing I brought to the solution was the problem. That takes all of our pride away. It's maddening to the natural man because every other religion has mechanisms that feed that natural desire we have in mankind to prove myself righteous. If I want to know how good I am, I can just go to confession. I can hang rosary beads from my window, my rearview mirror. I can make sure I have the praying hands sticker on the bumper. Or if I want a different view of it, I can pray five times a day towards Mecca, always keep the five pillars, and never eat food that I shouldn't be eating. Or if I want another flavor of it, I can always make sure that I'm praying and meditating and, and trying to empty my mind and looking for center and balance in life. There's always ways to evaluate that. That's what all the world religions offer us. It just naturally feeds that hunger for pride, accomplishment, and betterment. I'm better than you, and I know it. But the gospel doesn't allow that. Jesus says that in order to not die in your sins, you have to believe in him. That's it. That's it. And I'm sure many of you have had opportunities to share the gospel when you get to the end and somebody just says, that's it? Repent of my sin, leave that life, trust in Christ, that's it? What about like a church attendance? Do I need to get like a punch card and punch in and out? And what do I mean? What, what else do I got to do? It can't be like that. No big gestures, no measuring sticks, no sacred rituals, just faith alone in Christ alone. Verse 24 says that. I told you, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Not unless you clean up your life and keep the law. Not unless you pray 15 minutes a day and memorize a new Bible verse every week. Just Unless you believe, that's it. That's what he said. We must never exceed this. If we do, we distort the gospel. It must be left uncomfortably simple because that's how Jesus declared it. Dying in your sins is an eternally terrifying notion. It should send tremors through our skeletons. It is that. And yet the solution to this infinite horror is just three words. Unless you believe. That's the solution. It makes sense that in Romans 1.16 that Paul calls the gospel the power of God. Power, dunamis, where we get the word dynamite from. The gospel is the power of God. Why? Because believing in the Lord Jesus Christ undoes everything that you are and brings you into fellowship with everything that he is. If that's not power, then what is power? That's ultimate power. What a God we have. That's why we have to affirm again the exclusivity of the gospel. Look at verse 28. So then Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, meaning lifted him up on the cross, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father. When I'm lifted up, you'll know. Even those who won't believe, you'll know. Something's different. Lift it up. He's the only one. So when we're tempted to distort the message in the other way, that anybody who believes in anything is going to go to heaven. No, 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 no. The Son of Man lifted up. That's the one. That's the only one. That's the only one where the power of the gospel is. That's the only one where new life is. That's the only one that keeps us from dying in our sins unless we believe that I am He. The exclusivity of the gospel doesn't mean that people are excluded from hearing the message. It means that it is exclusively the only way to heaven. It is inclusively offered to anyone who will listen as the exclusive and only one way of the gospel. This son of man who lifted up on the standard, just like remember in Numbers 21, the bronze serpent lifted up 
When that thing's lifted up and you look at it, then you're saved from the death that you brought on yourself. Jesus already used that as an illustration back in chapter 3 of John. When I'm lifted up, you will know that I am he. When you have an imperceptible power, you don't need any other option, do you? It's not like when you're, winning a, when you're fighting a war and you have all the nuclear uh, capabilities that anyone could ever have and you go, well, I mean, what's our options catapult-wise? What are, what are our rock situations looking like in this war? Just, you know, I mean, we need options. If you have nuclear capabilities, nuclear, not nuclear, nuclear, pulled up George Bush there. You don't look for other options. You have unlimited power. So, so it is with the gospel. We don't look for other options. There aren't any other options. Other options are an insult and a denigration to the one true option. Christ is where the power of salvation comes to those of us who are sinners, which is all of us. So we know the purpose of John's gospel. Remember back in John, or not back in, but forward, but we looked at it at the beginning of this series, John 20, 31. But these, meaning these things that I included here in this book, these things are written for a purpose, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the whole reason I wrote the book. That's the whole reason I am including the things that I'm including in this book, so that you will believe in Jesus as the Son of God, and the only one who gives eternal life. That's why I'm writing these things. That's why the Spirit led him to include even this story, which maybe seems a little abrasive, which maybe seems a little bit harsh, but it's because he, the Holy Spirit decided you needed to hear this story in order to um, embrace Christ as the Son of God and as the giver of eternal life. This story adds to that for us. So we see here that the purposes of God cannot be thwarted. And they will not be hindered, certainly by not his own message. And what does Jesus, all he says he's doing, I declare to the world what I have heard from him. He's only saying what God has said. So we don't declare God's message, the Father's message, Jesus' message, in order to get results. We just declare it because it's the truth. And it is the truth. And we let God handle those results. We aren't enlightened pragmatists to where we're like, if we can just say the gospel in the right way, in the right, well, then we won't violate God's truth, but we'll also get the results that we want. No, we just give ourselves wholly to the truth and to the depth of the church and let him handle the breadth, how far out it goes out to everybody else. Because Jesus is giving this message knowing this is not going to make me popular. Technically, the conversation had ended earlier. I could have just probably bowed out after that and not brought this up. He chose to bring it up on purpose. And it's not because he's maniacally laughing and, and crowning his fingers wanting to see destruction come upon people because he's desperately giving them the truth over and over. You will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. None of these people are going to be able to say, Jesus didn't love us enough to tell us the truth. Jesus didn't love us enough to face us down when we openly wanted to arrest him and kill him. They won't be able to say that at all. He left the results with his father and himself being truly God, and so we must do the same. Our duty is just to be faithful, to be faithful. We don't manufacture results, manufacture things to get to where we want to get within our own lives or in the life of our church or the lives of whatever church we end up being a part of. Do we leave it in the hands of God? This is Jesus' ministry model, and may it be ours as well. And let us, let us learn to rejoice in the Son of Man and, and learn to nestle where we used to bristle. We used to bristle at hearing those kinds of things like the divinity of Christ, the depravity of man, and justification by faith alone. But may we learn to nestle in that, rest in that, because those things are unnatural truths to us, but they're truths unto our salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we would ask you to help us to learn to nestle where we used to bristle. All of us on some spectrum of embracing these three declarations that Jesus offers out. Some of them come easier to us than others. Some of us are very convinced that we're terrible people. Some of us are very convinced that, that Jesus is God. We're very convinced that justification is by faith alone. But where we are less 
equipped or in those truths where we're less understanding, less embracing wholeheartedly, show us how to grow in that. Show us how to, to mature in that and to see the, your love in those. Your love in them because they are what is. They exist. But you, as the very fountainhead of love, anything that love that we could possibly know that is true, it comes from you. And so these truths then therefore are your love. And where we don't see that, give us perseverance and humility to, to sit in texts like this and others that correlate with it until we do see your love in that. And we see a Savior pleading, even while having to, to utter harsh realities, still pleading with people that unless you believe, but they can believe, that it's been told to them they can believe. And may we, we carry that same message, that our compassion would never overwhelm your truth and that your truth would never come out of uncompassionate trumpets. We want to be faithful in all that you've given us to do. We want to be faithful in following Jesus' ministry methods and, and lifestyle of, of following you. Help us to do that and give us encouragement when we fall so short of that so regularly. Give us patience and long-suffering with each other as we constantly fall short with each other. We constantly fall short uh, in our relationships and in our, our networks and all of those things. And, and let us exalt uh, the truth of John 13, 34, and 35 that, that the most effective evangelistic method we could have is being a healthy, loving church because you say, by your love for each other, the lost world will know that we are your disciples. Let us stand firmly on that process and work faithfully to have that be more and true and more true and more true every, every day, every week, every month, every year here at our church. Thank you for allowing us to worship you. Thank for you for including us in that worship of you that we know that the, the angels are engaged in infinitely and around the clock. We are privileged to be welcomed into your throne room by the blood of your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, the men who